Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps Americans who voted for progress convince those who didn't to join our majority. Uh, We will be joined by Catherine Garcia in uh, a few minutes. But first, Ravi, let's do the news of the week. Well, Jason, I wanted to start by just asking you, I know that you're closely following what's happening in Afghanistan, so I just wanted to stop and get an update from you about how the evacuation is going. Well, let's start with how it is going on the whole, right? On the whole, you you have to be extremely impressed by what is happening on the ground and with the mobilization of governments across the world to get this done. I mean, the U.S. is, is continuing to evacuate people out of the, out of the airport in Kabul. On Tuesday, uh, President Biden said he still expected the U.S. to, to exit Afghanistan by the stated goal of August 31st. Obviously, that is somewhat controversial, but I imagine it, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye. Uh, the New York Times reported, though, that over 70,000 people have been airlifted out, which is a staggering and, frankly, inspiring number. But the Taliban, however, they're they're now blocking Afghans from getting to the airport in Kabul. And look, 70,000 is a really impressive number, and we should be really proud of that. But we also have to be realistic about the fact that there are there are people, and there are going to be a lot of people, who are more than deserving of getting out, who are not going to get out, and who are going to meet really terrible fates. And uh, unfortunately, like, I and a lot of other Afghan vets are experiencing this personally, and it's really difficult. Um, I am spending, I mean, it's basically my full-time job at the moment is trying to help a couple of Afghan families get out. And I'm on a, a text chain with a, a few of my my battle buddies who are trying to do the same. In one case, uh, a guy I served with who's trying to get out some people that he worked with I that I knew a little bit. I, I met them, but I didn't know them well. And it is it's really hard and, and it's, it's emotionally difficult, like for me, let alone, but for the, the Afghans on the other side, I mean, like I'm, I'm speaking with them and I'm texting with them and I've, I've called other governments around the country and had to try and get through to people to the point where Diana and I just changed our long distance plan for the rest of the month. Cause I think I've spent hundreds of dollars on this and, and it's hard. It's really hard when you're talking to somebody who's really deserving to get out and whose life is in a lot of danger and their family's life is in a lot of danger. And they're, they're, they're at the airport. They're sending you videos of you can see American soldiers not that far away. And you're having to try to explain, well, you know, I've put in for your visa and I've made this case and I've talked to this person, but, you know, nothing's happened yet. That's a very difficult thing to try to explain to somebody who's staying in a different house every night because they're trying to avoid the Taliban. And what what do we know so far about, you know, outside of the airport? 
right? Which, you know, U.S. has some semblance of control over the airport. But outside of the airport, the Taliban is now taking control by and large, but they're also facing some resistance amongst their population. We've been greeted with news of some major protests, but also resistance fighters. But it seems like the Taliban is, is basically taking control of the country. Do we have any sense a week later from our conversation last week about what that looks like? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been some resistance fighting. It's mostly, uh, from what I've seen, been in the north, uh, far from from Kabul. I don't know about the protests. Here's what's happening outside the airport. First of all, what people have to understand is that they should think at this point of the Kabul airport the way you think of like Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. It's a little piece of property in a hostile nation that we control, that that is ours. And then everybody has kind of said, okay, that's yours. The difference is, is that everybody has said that's yours for like another five days, right? And so we've got that cordoned off. American troops have that cordoned off. With very, very rare exceptions, American troops are not leaving that perimeter because I'm sure many of them want to, but they're in a position where they cannot because that's what's been negotiated with the government that currently controls the country we're in, which happens to be the Taliban in Afghanistan. And surrounding the airport, you have at times thousands upon thousands of people standing there, crowding in, trying to get to the gate, trying to get inside, trying to present papers to get through, understandably oftentimes with you know their families in tow. And on top of that, you have Taliban in the crowd, oftentimes whipping people, shooting people, beating people. And then American troops also have to consider the fact that ISIS in Afghanistan is trying to plot terrorist attacks against, against the American forces, but also probably against the Taliban, which it's all mixed together. Because for reasons we don't have time to get into, ISIS is the enemy of the Taliban at this moment in Afghanistan. So what that amounts to on the ground level is I can tell you a conversation I had yesterday with someone that I'm trying to help, someone who has been very helpful to U.S. forces, where I'm, and I can't get into all the different back channel stuff we're doing, but it came to a point where I'm saying, I need you to go to the airport now. I need you to take your family and go to the airport now. And he's, he's saying to me, Jason, I was just there. It's not safe. I, I can't do that right now. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying I understand. But all I can do right now is tell you where you have to go. And he's saying, you know, this is a person with a wife and children that are, I mean, anybody, any parent who's listening to this, who's ever like gone to an amusement park with more than one kid, it is a nerve wracking experience in those crowds. Now imagine that you have you have young children, and you've got to get through 1000s of people. And also there's shooting and there's, you know, all this stuff. It's a what a horrendous choice and a heart wrenching choice to make. Like this is your one shot. The window is closing, and you may not survive. Or and even if you do, you're living in this terribly grim reality. The guy I'm talking to has three daughters. But what is the responsible parenting decision when it means going to a place where you're putting everyone in danger? So I just this is not a criticism of the administration at all. Like the fact that seventy thousand people have been airlifted is tremendous and and we should be very proud of that but we should also remember that war is fucking awful <laughs> anyway yeah it's a difficult situation well i'm sorry man and please let us know if we could do anything and um you know we it's tragic for anybody watching but i can only imagine how difficult this has been for you uh and so 
you know, thank you for everything you've done. And, you know, I'm sure your friends down there on the ground really appreciate you doing everything you can to get them out, man. Um, I know it probably means so much to them. I appreciate it. I'll tell you something I've been thinking about a lot this week. I'm going to try and get through this because it's like a thought I've wanted to say publicly, but I haven't had a chance yet is like, when we make our policy and we think about our policy toward other nations, our national security policy, you know, sometimes it is so basic as like this week when I'm like constantly aware of what time it is in Kabul and I'm constantly trying to find some new avenue to get something done. Uh, I'm also in the meantime, like I've got my 11 month old daughter and, and, and one of the people I'm working with has a, a daughter about the same age. Um, with almost the same birthday. And and so what I've been thinking about is like, we never really acknowledge the, I don't know if it's the randomness or what. I mean, like there's this portal that souls come through and you pop up where you're going to pop up. And like, we act like, like, look, it is the right policy decision. You, you focus on the Americans, you get the Americans out. That's your first priority. Obviously that's the right thing to do. But we also should think about the fact, I've been thinking a lot lot about what Ben Rhodes said on the show last week when he said, you know, his biggest grievance with American foreign policy is that it doesn't recognize human beings existing outside the United States. I'm like, you know, it's, it's hard. Like my daughter could be his daughter and that could be us. And we just never really, I don't think acknowledge that. Yeah. I think about that a lot, you know, my dad used to always tell me because my dad came out of extreme poverty in India uh, and he used to just describe to me like the basic conditions on the ground there. And I, and I often think about, you know, my dad had this journey to the United States where he barely made it in. And I often think about just, you know, I wouldn't exist if he didn't make it to that airport and whoever, you know, whatever kids he would have had would have grown up in a village where there wasn't even a school building. And the folks that, that you were working with in Afghanistan for all the, the, the economic conditions on the ground in Afghanistan, they're also in the middle of a war zone. And, you know, I think it's like a dual feeling, right? Like, happy to be where you are, but also, like, maybe we should be more urgent about using that privilege, right? Like, you know, you certainly have um, in your service, and it's just a reminder that, you know, you just got, you could be comfortable, you know, but also just do more, right? What can we do? Not just for the people of Afghanistan, but... And it's not just about the political leaders, right? This gets to last week's conversation. It's, there's so many choices we can make as individuals that recognize the, the common humanity that we have. I just keep going back to this thing we've talked about on the show before, like how American policy, domestic or international, would be different if you had to make it before you were born. Like right. if you had to decide what the rules were. It's like a veil were, of ignorance of the foreign yeah, policy. Yeah. Like you didn't know what country you're going to be born in. Or if you just do domestic policy, you didn't know which family you were going to be born into, where you were going to, you didn't know what your parents were going to do for a living or what their parents did for a living or how long they'd been in America or whether they're in America now. You know, you, if you didn't get to know that, if Ted Cruz didn't get to know that when he decided what he believed, I think he comes up with a different set of ideas. Yeah. I think you just independently came up with Rawls's veil of ignorance. I'm so proud yeah. of you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's one of those things where I'm vaguely aware it exists out there, but I, I didn't pay enough attention in school. You made it more accessible than he did. Well, Jason, I just want to say, you know, our listeners don't know the journey that you've had quite yet. I know they will once your your next book comes out, but I'll just say, like, having read an early part of that draft and spent time with you in Kansas City, 
the weight that you carry, I think you, you do a lot of work to not let us all in on that secret about the weight that you carry. But I, I see it and I appreciate just everything that you've done and just how much you care. It's one of the many things that make you an awesome dude. Oh, well, thanks, man. I appreciate uh, your friendship and everybody at Wonder, too, because, like, I just sent an angry text this week that was like, I need to talk about this. And everybody's like, yeah, okay, cool. So, <laughs> This podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. Actually, just a few minutes before recording this episode, I was talking to my wife and we were talking about how all this you know, stuff that's been going on this week for me uh, that we just discussed, we were agreeing that I've been handling it very well. And then we also agreed, but you know what? Maybe talk to the therapist next week, which is something I now do on a you know every few months basis when I decide to. And that's a great thing that BetterHelp is there for. So if something is interfering with your happiness, we want to introduce you to something that might help. It's BetterHelp. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you to your licensed therapist. It's so convenient that you could start communicating in under 48 hours. You could send a message to your counselor anytime or set up phone or video chats. And we want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com m54. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com m54. So Jason, you and I were in the middle of a meeting for this podcast. And in the middle of it, I was just like, hey, man, did you get those Super Beats heart shoes? And then we just kind of disrupted the whole meeting by talking about how awesome this product is. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, my God, they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. And what's amazing is I actually don't like Beats, but I love these heart shoes. I'm the same as you. When I saw this and it said Beats, like B-E-E-T-S, I was like real wary. Then I had one and I was like, wait, this is a Starburst. And so I turned it around and I looked at it and no, it's not. It's like really good for you. So they combine non-GMO beets with a special ingredient, grapeseed extract that is unique to Super Beets Heart Chews. And it's really cool just because I've actually been on to you about this chemical called resveratrol, which is one of the key ingredients. You know, there's all these studies saying that it's like a key to anti-aging. Um, and so I had independently- two of us are annoyingly obsessed with both I had independently say. talked to you about this before we got this product. And now we have an easy way to take it every day. Support your heart health with delicious Super Beats Heart Chews. Get your Super Beats Heart Chews today at superbeats.com slash 5-4. And when you buy two bags, they'll throw in the third for free. That's superbeats.com slash 5-4. Okay, well, having concluded that discussion, we've all kind of stepped away for a minute, gotten a drink of water, and now we're going to go on to something completely different and I would say a lighter subject. Jason, we had JD on a couple of weeks ago to talk about rural America, and I'm really excited to welcome Catherine Garcia today to talk about urban America. And Catherine Garcia is somebody who's been doing the work for a long time. She served as commissioner for New York City's Sanitation Department from 2014 to 2020. She was also instrumental in trying to turn around NYCHA most recently and served as the food czar of New York City in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic with the mandate to ensure that no New York City resident went hungry. So she has balanced multiple jobs in the face of crisis and most recently ran for New York City mayor and started off as, I, I, don't, I wouldn't even say relatively unknown, but a completely unknown figure in New York City politics to the average voter and came within 0.8 percentage points 
of winning the Democratic primary. So, Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, Catherine, uh, let's start off with your most recent run, like your run for mayor. You ran on a platform that was that should be pretty basic, which is improving city services, essentially, is, is my kind of Cliff Notes version of it and saying like, you know, not just quality of life, but just the things you depend on from your city should work for you. And that was your message, essentially, as I saw it. Why was that so revolutionary? You know, many voters, uh, and I say particularly many Democratic voters, often vote for something that's the big idea rather than the nuts and bolts. And during the pandemic, when the nuts and bolts were not working, it became a life and death situation for voters. Uh, And suddenly, whether or not your garbage got picked up, whether or not there was space in an emergency room was absolutely imperative to voters. They needed their kids to go back to school. They needed to make sure their city was safe. They needed to make sure uh, that things stayed clean and all of that fell apart. Uh, And because it fell apart, it it had much more significance for voters. You know, Ravi and I talk a lot about how like we have to accept the fact that the Democrats are the party of government, right? Like for so long, Democrats, like if you think back to like the Clinton State of the Union where he's like, well, the era of big government is over. Like for so long, Democrats nationally have tried very hard to get out of this frame that Republicans put them in of like, they like government and they think government's great. And we Republicans think you're great. And what Robbie and I talk often about is like, we have to face the fact that we are the party that thinks government actually can do good things. And therefore we have this enormous responsibility the other party doesn't have to like do a good job when we are in in control of any of government of any, at any level. And so what I'm driving at is like, is admitting that is like embracing that and being someone who has worked in government. Do you feel like that's a part of not just like how you campaigned, but how you actually feel? I would not run away from the title of government can do good. And to also wrap yourselves in all the things that I would say a lot of Republicans enjoy, like Social Security and Medicare uh, and public education. These are all values that most Americans have, except rather than saying, yeah, you're right, we believe in government. We believe that it has the capacity to do great things for people and really own that but also make sure that it's fair. People don't like giveaways. That is, they wanna work hard. They want everybody else to work hard. When you are a hardworking candidate, they appreciate that. But it does mean that you can't screw up when you're in the hot seat. You need to do a good job. If you say these programs are gonna be fabulous, you can't let there be fraud. You can't not get the money out the door because you've created a website that doesn't work. So you do have to execute in order to be able to have that claim be true, that government is able to help people. Yeah, Catherine, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the messages that, you know, your core messages in the campaign, because you're not afraid, you know, as a Democrat and as somebody who, who has seen underfunding plague certain key programs in the city, for instance, NYCHA, when you were there, you weren't afraid to call for more funding, but I think what made you different sorry, was- Sorry, what's, what's NYCHA? What oh, sorry, NYCHA again? is our public housing, uh, ah. New York City's public housing. Sorry, uh, good good clarify. Um, All right. So Catherine was brought in um, in 2019, I believe, to turn around what had been a 
think it's 2018. It might have been. I've lost track of the years. With <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple years ago to turn around <laughs> couple years ago, yes. what had been and still struggling uh, institution. And, you know, you weren't afraid to call out the funding, but that doesn't make you unique within Democrats. I think what makes you unique and, and I think what resonated with voters is you didn't stop there. And I want to I want to spend more time on what you said earlier, which is Democrats are really good at like the, the big rhetoric sometimes, but not always on the follow through. It's easy to say, yeah, government should work, but what are some of those roadblocks that you faced uh, and that you talked about on the campaign trail that that resonated with voters in a way where they were like, it takes courage to say that? Because anybody could say, hey, let's make government work more, right? But what was it that you were saying and experiencing that we should all just take note of as Democrats? Well, it, it's also, I took positions that were not very far to the left, that were much more moderate or even to the right during the primary which is about being honest. Uh, you know, our charter schools working in the city of New York? Yeah, a lot of them are working in the city of New York. Are the public schools all working in the city of New York? No, actually a ton of them are not working. And to be honest about where we are meeting the moment and where we are not meeting the moment. You know, we were in the middle of conversations where everyone was talking about defunding the police. That's, they're just people. And we need to think about what it is we want from them and ask them to do it, but you can't, you can't hashtag policy. It might be fun. It might trend. You might get a lot of donations. It won't actually achieve anything at the end of the day. And having those real honest conversations with voters, I think they found surprising and refreshing. It's interesting how, how true that is, particularly at the local level. Like the more local you are, the more, even in a democratic primary, the more the stuff that trends on Twitter, the stuff that brings in the donations seems to matter less and less because people don't have the luxury of voting ideologically when every decision that is made, not every, but far more decisions that are made at the local level directly affect their life. And I guess maybe there is a lesson to be learned from that. And I think some people listening to this will think that the lesson would be be more moderate, be more, but I don't think that's your no. point. Your point is be real about what is working and what isn't because you didn't say charter schools work and public schools don't. You said, here's what's happening here that I see with my eye. I'm not making a broader policy conclusion. I'm telling you, here's what is working right now here. Yes. And I, I, I believe that I got this actually from being the commissioner of sanitation because uh, I could have said anything I wanted on Twitter and every New Yorker would walk out the door <laughs> and say, did she pick up my garbage? Did she plow my snow? And make their own decision on whether or not the work got done. At the local level, that is particularly true because it is, did your did your kid come home and can they read today? Yeah. I, I want to talk, Catherine, about snow removal. So don't let me forget about that as a, as a former New York City school student who intrigued by the process of removing snow and roots against snow removal, I guess, still in my heart. <laughs> uh, but, um, well, actually, let's go there and then I'll come back <laughs> to that. I, I, there, you just mentioned two things that really excite me, snow removal and charter schools, but I'll, I'll go with snow removal first. Walk just, I'm intrigued. Like, walk me through, Blizzard's about to hit New York City. What's the, what's the life of a New York City sanitation commissioner? For listeners, like snow removal is under the purview of the sanitation commissioner in New York. I'm not sure if that's true in all cities, but uh, it's not true in almost any other city. Yeah. So the, the garbage trucks become plows in New York city. Usually it's public works folks who do that in most other places. Uh, and so when you have a storm coming and I should 
make no horrible remarks about meteorologists and their ability to tell me when a storm is coming or how deep the storm will be, because uh, usually not correct. But let's presume that they're, they're right. We're going to have a, a big blizzard tomorrow. We will actually already have started to move the entire sanitation force, so all 6,400, into a split 12-hour, 12-hour shift. We would have put plows on all of the garbage trucks so that we would have about 2,300 garbage trucks available and another, I think it's 684 spreaders, both small and large spreaders for the salt. And then we begin at the first flake. Sometimes we do some pre-brining, depending on what the temps are. You just start rolling. And so we spend a lot of time at the department making sure that that was no longer on paper because literally when I got there, they would hand people long route sheets. And if you'd like to imagine trying to read a piece of paper in some place you've never been, like Mid-Island of Staten Island, if you're from Brooklyn, <laughs> uh, and in the middle of a blizzard and drive safely. So, you know, we created um, a system that allows them to have their routes where we can actually feed the routes to the system from central and track everything and know our percent completes on every block. And it's about 19,000 lane miles in the city of New York. Wow, that's amazing. Well, I want to come back to the education. Ravi, I think that content may have just been for you. But yeah, no, but it was so draw, no, 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 I mean, I'm, like, I'm just so fascinated. Well, hold on, let's, let's draw a lesson from it. Like whether your city vote, suburban vote doesn't matter. Like I think the point is, and we, I've said this before, that the best argument for progressive values is progress people can see. And people can see that there was snow this morning. And now that it's time for my commute or, or it snowed overnight, I know that it's time for my commute and I can get there. And and I guess the point is, is that at all levels, Democrats have to think if we're going to continue to make the argument, no, government is good. It's a force for good in your life. Like you, you can't just occupy yourself with ideological discussions. You've got to find problems in people's lives that you can solve. And something that jumps out at me, I remember when Claire McCaskill got the uh, FAA to, and it wasn't a piece of legislation. She just bullied the FAA into finally admitting, yes, actually it is fine if you use a cell phone in airplane mode before you hit 10,000 feet. I remember when she got them to do that. And it was like probably one of the most helpful things to her political fortunes that she was able to do. Yes, I, I, I agree with that. I think that the little things matter when government also says things that are dumb it undermines the whole argument, which if you are also a West Wing fan, the pilot episode where he's got his cell phone out, and obviously it's an enormous cell phone because it's 20 something years ago. Uh, and he goes, how are you telling me something I bought at Radio Shack can take down a brand new airplane? You can't use your phone until we land, sir. We're flying in a Lockheed Eagle Series L-1011. Came off the line 20 months ago carries a SIM-5 transponder tracking system. Are you telling me I can still flummox this thing with something I bought at Radio Shack? You can call when we land, sir. Also, I never got my peanuts. None of us ever believed that. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we just didn't think that that made any sense whatsoever. So when, when we do stuff that says that people won't believe, you undermine the credibility in government. And I think that it's a it's an excellent example, both the trash example and the cell phone on a plane example of not only solving a problem that exists in people's lives that everybody understands exists, but also demonstrating that you, the politician, understand that that's a problem because you live amongst other people. And like you, 
want trash picked up you yes. want the snow removed you are living in the city and understand just like claire was like i'm flying and just like you i think this is stupid it creates a connection while also solving a problem in people's lives and i think about the energy that it's required to do the work that we're asking people to do in government and i think of how in our politics it seems like we always elect people who have one foot out the door into the next office is something that i find frustrating is that you know, at, at Arena, we were always helping, which uh, Catherine is this organization that I helped found that, that supports candidates around the country. We're often electing candidates and then literally like weeks within, you know, from their, their election to office, they're talking about the next office they want to be in. And what I'm struck by is what you're talking about is it, it takes a lot like to, to, to just manage snow on a daily basis or, for instance, what, what you did and, you know, Catherine like helped reform the private waste disposal market in New York City, which was a mess and was an environmental and traffic nightmare. Um, and so like, these are all things that require tough negotiations, being there every day, giving your 100%. And I want to create, how do we create a politics, Catherine, that rewards that kind of long-term work? It is very tough uh, because of the structures of how we elect candidates. So one of the things that was true and why you don't see other commissioners stepping out to run for the office so that they can, in a sense, take the big job for the person they've been working for, is you can't raise money. If you are not an elected official, you cannot raise money if you're on the executive side, which means that you do not create a pool of people who have that same point of view around how important the work is. And so you have a structural challenge about attracting those people who are operators who do work into the system because of the, the, the need to raise money. And I wish that wasn't true, but it is. I have a crazy idea. I actually don't fully mean this, but I, I almost want to create a non-compete agreement for candidates I support from now on where I'm just like, <laughs> look, if you're going to run for this office, I need you to agree that you are not going to go run for another office for X number of years. <laughs> and see, nobody will nobody will take my endorsement again, but then at least I won't have to deal with calls for money anymore. Yes, it's, it's true. Uh, or you can just use a fake phone number. That'll yeah. that's the other thing. <laughs> when we think about this idea of like finding problems that you can solve and using that to sort of demonstrate credibility on behalf of, of Democrats and progressives everywhere, when you look at American cities, what institutions or services do you think need the most thorough overhaul? And it could be something that we're all aware of, or maybe it's something that people aren't thinking about enough. Now, there are two pieces of it. One is the, you know, obviously you always have to be focused on the basics of local government, just like education, roads, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the thing that I would say that we do a really bad job because they have no constituency is anything that has to do with social services. You know, we don't, it, there's not like a common app. Yeah. So if you need food or you need housing or you need worker training, this is all completely disjointed. And so we spend a tremendous amount of money and get an incredibly poor result. If you're poor, basically you get to stand on a lot of lines and fill out a lot of paperwork, which in the 21st century should not be how we manage that. Can I just say, that's something people definitely don't know, what you just said. And, you know, I've spent the last couple of years working in the veterans homelessness space. And one of the things I learned that I, I didn't, I don't think I knew or even like came close to knowing before is that like being homeless, for instance, is a full-time job. 
Like yeah. there are, you have to be at certain places at certain times or you will not eat or you will not sleep in a warm place. And you have to wait in lines to do that. And, and I'm sure you're right. Like to live in poverty in America and to survive is a full-time job. And we, we don't really think about that. And an incredible waste of resources, yeah. both financial as well as time. Because uh, our goal should be to get people back on their feet and out of the system. Mm-hmm. And instead, the system makes it so you can never escape. That's and interesting the- what you're saying, because that is a little bit of a there's a there's a kernel to that that is a bit of a right wing talking point. But the kernel is correct. Right. The kernel being that uh, like we have systems that are there to keep you alive, but not to remove you from the system, like to make you permanently part of it. Yes. Not on purpose. Uh, That's what they would no. argue. They would argue on purpose. But I mean, the, no. the kernel of it is it happens. It happens and it's demoralizing, extremely difficult for families uh, and is, is perpetuates poverty in the U.S. in many cases. You escape, but for the grace of God. It is so hard to escape that system. But the other challenge in U.S. cities is just affordability. And being able to get your foot into the middle class at all and afford a home. And in my lifetime, that has completely changed. Not that New York City was ever cheap, but there was always some place you could find uh, where you could live and have a job that didn't pay very much or you were starting out. But that's just not true anymore. And those initial jobs, you know, even if that was I'm a runner on Wall Street. I'm the coffee guy on Wall Street. There were actually those sorts of jobs. They don't exist anymore. And so we need to recreate the connections to both our public universities as well as our public high schools to where the jobs are developing in city centers. And they are upper level jobs because otherwise they would move them somewhere else. But those connections have to be done intentionally in a way that they did not need to be done before. Otherwise, you will have a complete widening of the gap in cities in particular because of affordability issues. Yeah, and you know, a related issue that you mentioned earlier, where you took a pretty bold stance in the campaign is on education. And what I found interesting is that of the the four top vote getters, from what I can understand in this race, three out of four were pro-charter school. And I, my bias here, I'm going to put it out there for listeners who don't know, is I was a charter school principal. So like totally biased, but that was a choice I made because I believe in the institutions in certain places. What I find interesting, Catherine, is that on this affordability front, right, people will hit you for saying you're for school choice and they'll say it's a right-wing talking point. But there's school choice in New York City and, and other cities across America that we all exercise all the time. Sending your kid to a private school, moving to the right fancy neighborhood to get send your kid to that school. The, the complex web of gifted and talented programs in New York City. I th- how young do we test people into gifted programs? Like essentially Four out of the womb. Yeah, out of the womb, essentially, we're saying kids are gifted, which is really just a test of resources at that point and know-how. We're not testing all the kids, by the way. So there's school choice everywhere. But I think like, People like you caught heat, I think, for supporting the school choice mechanism that black and brown families mainly use in New York City. What were the politics of that like, and and how'd you weather that? Actually, if you look at the test scores for gifted and talented, you want to know what the actual real determinant is if you get past the test? You're born in January, February, or March. Oh, Oh, that makes perfect sense. As as somebody with kids, 
True's the oldest kid in his class, and it just worked out that way. But I always joke that we redshirted him. Yeah, <laughs> you uh, did. Yeah. yeah, I mean that yeah. makes perfect sense. Of course, of course. I mean, the percentage-wise of your life, you're like you're ten percent older than the other kids that are testing. You are. I mean, you oh. are. So you do. You do better. So I come from public schools. Like I graduated from New York City public schools. My sister's a public school teacher. So I'm certainly not biased against public schools. I know they can be great, but I also just know they aren't in many cases. And that when you say you are anti-charter schools, it means you're anti-choice for the people who can't afford to go to private school or Catholic school or yeshiva or uh, moved to the fancy neighborhood, which has the better elementary schools or moved to Staten Island which often has some of the better schools uh, that are the best people, schools. best people, best schools. No, Brooklyn. Just going to say Brooklyn. We can have a little competition. Well, here. I was born there, so I claim both. So, uh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it is, I come to my policy positions around what is best for the kid, even with a commitment to doing a lot to support public schools. I care that that first grader starting first grade this year, and clearly I won't have fixed it by this September. And so they need to have as much opportunity as possible. You know, it's not easy to come to that position in the city of New York. And I know that there was some, uh, shall I say, maneuvering on the union side to make it so I didn't get completely tossed under a bus. And that's because I had some allies in some other parts of the city. But you have to be really, and this is partly because I was never a politician before. If you come by the policy honestly and the values and you don't, you are not playing to a talking point, voters actually pick that up. Amen. Voters, oh, voters do hear that. And even if they disagree with you, they respect you for how you came to your position, much more so than if they think you're tap dancing around a point to try and get their vote or tell them what that's what they want to hear. It's much more likely to lead to them correctly reaching the conclusion that you care about people like them. Like if you care, if, if you care enough to tell them something that you think they may not want to hear, they're like, well, they care about me. Yeah. Well, I can't resist mentioning, you must be familiar with the, the sort of right-wing talking point about New York as this symbol of just destitution and crime that like is this boogeyman for the country as a whole they try to use it as a symbol of what democrats would do to the country what do you say to that well it's really sort of silly <laughs> um because in you're talking about what is it 8.8 .8 million people who live within the five boroughs clearly we're not all toting ak-47s down the street you know if, if it was the worst place in the world we wouldn't probably have quite so many people who are uber wealthy and clearly can live anywhere living here in this city. But they do because they like it too. But to, to dig deeper on this, though, I feel like here in the middle of the country, one of the things I hear the most often from people is, but Democrats run the cities, just like cities generally. And the cities are the places that have more crime. And the cities are, and sometimes these are things that are quantifiable, right? Like there is more crime in the cities. There is more poverty sometimes, in rural areas you can argue, but like versus the suburbs, people will say. It's a very frustrating question, a very frustrating answer, because we all know inherently what you just said, which is 
well, you've got a bunch of people in one place. And uh, and then there's the follow-up thing, which is, well, a lot more services are provided there. So yes, but that's a defensive. And, and I'm just curious whether you have a good answer to that as to why it is that these challenges exist more in cities and why it's not an argument for letting Republicans run cities. So I actually don't think poverty is just part of cities. I'd say if you're poor in a rural area, you probably are worse off because you have the real challenge of transportation. Yeah. That is sort of next level compared to any city. So being able to find employment and opportunity in cities is easier. There are just more jobs in cities, which is why many people end up here. Uh, they, they come for work in the same way that there are pockets of crime in rural areas as well. Uh, there are areas of the city that are less safe than other areas. But New York City, since the late 80s, has just gotten safer and safer over time. And even with the uptick is still incredibly safe. The thing that draws people to cities is, is they're interesting, dynamic places and have real opportunity for people. Before we go, though, let me let me ask, I want to take this step further. Like, let's take your job clearing snow from when you were in sanitation you're clearing snow because maybe the way to handle this argument is to like is to really take it to its logical conclusion let's say we put like a libertarian republican in charge of that what would you envision them doing and what would you envision the result of that being well jason jason and Catherine, i actually have a, a maybe a great example that happened in real life of the market versus the city that Catherine was right in the middle of which is what happened with regular waste disposal in the city versus what happened with private waste disposal. And I think, Catherine, you had to intervene in the private market because the private waste disposal market was creating all these problems for the city, right? Like that mm -hmm. was almost the libertarian dream was that basically what was happening, Jason, and Catherine, correct me if I'm wrong, is that put aside the history of organized crime in the private waste disposal market, but there was a all the private waste disposal companies were basically running the same routes and causing all this pollution and backing up traffic, right? Am I getting this right, Catherine? Yeah. And you had to basically step in and, and it was just basically unworkable. Uh, and she had to step in and basically work out new routes so that basically these cars could even make it through the road collecting trash. And they ended up killing a bunch of their own employees because, and, and there was a lot of, lot of things that were going wrong. Like, you know, we'll find some people on a street corner and give them $20 for 12 hours work. Trucks that were going a hundred plus miles every night on a route. Just to give you for a sanitation truck to fill up in the public sector, it takes you about nine miles on a long route. So they are all rushing and literally different vendors are picking up every different business on a block. So you might have 10 every night, you might have 50 every night. And because they're pushing the limits of what people can actually physically do, it got incredibly unsafe. It created a tremendous amount of extra miles that did not have to happen. Uh, so when we did the legislation that reformed it and created zones, we cut 50% of the traffic that will be required to pick up private waste in the city of New York and also got better safety requirements because literally there were people getting killed by these guys and that they will actually have to, which they've supposed to have done since 1992, pick up recycling. They 
we're not, let's put it that way. So we're going to get a lot of benefit by having done that piece of legislation, but we did keep it competitive. We did not give anyone a monopoly on any geographic area because we did listen to businesses who said, I need the ability to fire someone. I need the ultimate hammer to keep people honest. So they get a choice, but you don't get to run the trucks all over the city. So I think that's the perfect example. That mm-hmm. th- that would have been the libertarian dream. It's like yeah. trucks waking you up every five minutes on your block and spewing yep. pollution into your streets. Well, Catherine, this was super fascinating. Um, I'm such a fan. I look forward to whatever you do next. Um, you really are a New York treasure. Oh, thank you so much. It's been great to get on Zoom with you. Thanks so much. Take care. Well, Jason, that was super fascinating. You know, one big takeaway I have from that conversation is that I think a lot of candidates that you and I probably come across think that they need to speak in these sort of sweeping platitudes in order to captivate voters. And one thing I found refreshing about Catherine is that she is just, she has a charisma about the details of governing that I find refreshing. You know, the, the greatest compliment in politics is like, you seem like a normal person. And it's like, as I've said many times, the only profession where that counts as a compliment but that that she does and she's just out there trying to solve problems she as she put it like she's not trying to figure out the right hashtag she's like yeah how do i make sure this person's trash or snow is removed which you're right like usually you might think on paper would be boring but it's not when they're actually solving the problems they're trying to solve and to link it back to the conversation we had with JD about the rural vote and how these things are the same is that whether you're talking about city voters, or you're talking about rural voters, you know, in the case of rural voters, people who, who tend to vote Republican, JD talked about antitrust. He talked about things that were affecting their life. He talked about the fact that there was consolidation at the corporate level in agriculture and that that was screwing them over. He didn't like just do a democratic talking point better. He talked about a problem that exists. And that's exactly what Catherine's talking about. So whether you're in the city or whether you're in the country, it's really about solving people's problems. There's a specialist for just about everything, right? When my car breaks down, I go to a mechanic. When there's a problem with my shower, I call a plumber. So when you want to get your uneven crooked teeth fixed, you see an orthodontist. They're the specialists. And that's what sets Candid, the invisible, comfortable, and removable aligners above the rest. And with Candid, the same orthodontist who created your plan is with you from the start to finish, so you never have to wonder how you're doing. The average Candid treatment is just six months. You'll start seeing, I mean, I had braces for so long. Six months is so short. You'll start seeing results way before then, and it costs thousands less than traditional braces. And with your aligner treatment, you'll get Candid's teeth whitening for free. Candid can help you get the straighter, brighter smile you've always wanted. Right now, you can save $75 on your Candid starter kit when you get started from home, or you can book an appointment at a Candid studio near you today. Go to candidco.com slash majority54 and use the code majority54. That's candidco.com slash majority54, code majority54. Take advantage of this limited time offer to save $75 on your starter kit. That's candidco.com slash majority54, code majority54. Jason, you know, you and I have talked about for a while here just how awesome some of our foreign language teachers are, but how we weren't in a good place at the time in high school and middle school to truly appreciate what they had to offer. And that's why I love Babbel. Of all the different online and other tools out there to learn foreign languages, I love Babbel the most. And part of it is just that 
their lessons have so many different kinds of ways of teaching you material. So you can listen to something and answer a question about it or listen to actual conversations between people and just grasp what they're saying in real world context, which is, you know, more like what it's like when you're traveling to a foreign country. It's not, you know, subject specific, although they do that pretty well too. So I just love the tool. They gamify it in a really cool way so that you get excited as you work your way through the different lessons. And I can't recommend it enough. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Right now, when you purchase a three-month Babbel subscription, you'll get an additional three months for free. That's six months for the price of three. Just go to Babbel.com and use promo code MAJORITY54. That's B-A-B-B-E-L.com, code MAJORITY54, Babbel, language for life. Well, Jason, for grabbing or... I want to talk about the California recall. I know I've been a little hard on Gavin Newsom um, for people who've been listening for a while, but unequivocally, if you live in California, you know anybody who lives in California, you have got to make sure that folks turn out and vote in this recall election that's happening on September 14th. And it's a little complicated, but there are two questions on the ballot. The first question is, do you want to recall Gavin Newsom? It's really important that voters vote no on that. Yeah, I mean, just vote no on the first question. That's really the grab and or, because it's going to be not unlike what trash and snow removal would be like in New York City if you just let private industry do it. Like, it'll be like that, but across California and everything, if you don't get out and vote no. Yeah, it's just inherently anti-democratic, right? Like, one of the biggest problems with this is that you know, 49.9% of people could want Gavin Newsom to stay on the first question, but because there are something like 46 candidates on the second question who don't include, because Gavin Newsom won't be on the second question, that somebody with, you know, less than 25% of the, the electorate could become the next governor. So somebody wholly unrepresentative of the people of California. And so it would be a true disaster. It's anti-democratic, it's wrong, and it's a huge waste of resources. So just please vote no on that first question. All right. Remember, you can leave us a voicemail. Um, Next week, we are going to be doing a a bunch of voicemails. Um, We're really excited for that episode. We got a bunch lined up. Our voicemail is 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. He's in Costa Rica surfing right now. So lots of good stuff there at the moment. Catherine is at KG for NYC. So KG NYC on Twitter. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Well, I got everything I needed out of that one. That was great. Charter schools and snow removal. Oh, my God. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.